Why do you stand staring up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Hallelujah. He's on his way. He's on his way, folks. <sighs> right. If you have a Bible, you, you might like to turn to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, hey, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Ha. This is a great time to be a Christian. In fact, there's never been a better time to be a Christian. And there's never been a better time to be a radical, sold out, going for it, 100% serious, spirit-filled, Christian than in 21st century England. Hallelujah. And here we are. So if you're really serious about denying yourself and taking up your cross <laughs> and following Jesus, this is the time to do it. Hallelujah. The church is coming out of a season of emulsification. We start with a chemistry lesson today. <laughs> For the last few decades, the church has been emulsified. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Okay. <laughs> An emulsion is a mixture of oil and water. Now, normally, oil and water don't mix. If you shake up oil and water, put the bottle on the table, the layers separate. 
with me so far. But it is possible to add an ingredient and shake it up and get a mixture which is called an emulsion. And for those of you who were here last night, and I hope you've done your homework, what is the name of the thing that makes it an emulsion? Very good, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> that B is looking dodgy, Alan. I think it's going to a C. <laughs> a surfactant. Surfactant. A surfactant, this is the chemistry lesson, is a molecule that mixes some of the properties of oil and some of the properties of water. And if you add a surfactant to a mixture of oil and water and shake it up, you get an emulsion. And for the last few decades, that's where the church has been. There have been a lot of double-minded men around the church. Men who can agree with these people over here in the world. And men who can agree with Jesus over here. Men who can please the world and men who can please God. Double-minded men. Now an interesting thing, two more things about uh, emulsions I'm going to tell you today. And then your chemistry is done and we'll move on. The first is that emulsions are unstable. They always tend to separate back out. And the Bible says that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It will separate out eventually. And there's been an instability around the church. But God is separating the water from the oil. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's good news. We have to help that process and not hinder it. We have to get rid of double-mindedness from our thinking. We have to be clear. The second thing is that once you've separated the oil from the water, the oil will burn. You cannot burn mayonnaise. <laughs> You can't set fire to mayonnaise. <laughs> All right. Now, that one you can try, Alan, when you get home. You try that. You'll be all right with that one. You cannot set fire to mayonnaise. But if you extract the oil from the mayonnaise, you can set fire to that. And as God is separating the world from the church, that oil is catching fire. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, years ago, we used to get proper fire training. Now it's rubbish. But in, back in the day, we used to get trained off the fire brigade. And that was great because they would take you through real situations. And one of the things they would do was that they would set the oil on fire. And then the firemen would pour water on it. And you knew it was going to be good because he'd be in his full kit and he'd have the water 
on a long pole like that. And the pole was all black and bent. And believe me, when you pour the water on that oil, it goes off like a rocket. God wants to bring the church back to a place where it's on fire. And the world just makes those fires burn higher and brighter. Hallelujah. Now, back in the day of Titus, back in Titus's time, this was much easier. The first century church had a big advantage over the 21st century church. And the advantage was that they were totally different to anything that the world had ever seen before. Back in the Roman Empire, you did not have a national health service. You did not have housing benefit in the Roman Empire. You did have getting fed to the lions and that kind of thing. But you did not have any kind of social security net. So when the church appeared on the scene, the contrast could not have been greater. They loved one another supernaturally. That had never been seen before in the history of mankind. They moved in signs and wonders. They raised the dead. They healed the sick. They fed the hungry. They clothed the naked. And they took in the homeless. None of that had ever been seen before. Now the world has had 2,000 years to try and work out some kind of compromise with the church. The devil tried it with Jesus. If you worship me, I'll give you all of that. You can have the lot. I'll give it all to you. For us, as the church, the world has been working on a compromise for 2,000 years. I'll give you a seat in the House of Lords. I'll give you an abbey. I'll give you a cathedral. You can have all of that. But God is taking the compromise out. And the oil is separating from the water. Hallelujah. Now, I want to major today on the grace of God. Verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. And so it goes on. So let's wrestle for a little while with the question of what is the grace of God? And this is such a big question. It's at the very heart of what we believe as Christians that I can't really give you the whole story today. But let's work around this. Let's meditate on it. Let's think a little bit about what the grace of God actually means. Well, there are a number of ways you can define it, first of all. It is the steadfast love of God. It is kindness. Grace is loyalty. It's loving kindness. It's mercy. Grace is goodness. It's covenant love. Grace is favor. 
In the New Testament, the word translated gr grace is charis. And you can define that as the divine power which equips man to live a moral life. Grace is our teacher. Grace is a power word. Grace is a power word. It's the empowering presence of God. Here's a quote from Bill Johnson for you. He says, the law requires, but grace enables. That's good, isn't it? The grace of God enables us to live a godly life. Another thing about grace is that grace flows. And their flow has a direction. Grace always flows from God. It originates with God. It's impossible for us to show grace to God. We can't do that. Why? Because God has nothing. He needs nothing that we have. We can never do him any kindness. There's nothing that he needs from us. He is the source of grace, and we are the receivers of grace. It has to be that way. But grace is not meant to stop with us. It's meant to flow through us to the undeserving and the wicked, to the enemies of the gospel. It always has to flow from God through us to the unbelieving world around us. You can never go back the other way. can only receive his grace and pass it on. So if you're serious about living the Christian life, you have to get the grace of God working. And the reason for that is that grace is our teacher. Titus 2.12. It's our teacher. Grace transforms us. It's not so much about your status. It's not a stamp in your passport to get you through the pearly gates. No, grace is something that changes us from the inside out. It's a bit like a sat-nav is grace. Sat-nav tells you where to go, doesn't it? You tell it where you want to go. It says, turn left at the end of the road. Turn right at the roundabout, straight on. Or if you're like me, it's often saying, turn around when possible. <laughs> You've heard that. Turn around when possible. Grace is like that. Never gives up. You can set off 180 degrees in the wrong direction the grace of God will always try to bring you home. Turn around when possible. And it works, you know, it really works. One of the training things that I had to do last year, <laughs> which I didn't enjoy, was I, they signed me up for this leadership course, so I had to go and learn how to be a leader. And... There was a couple of good bits in it, and one of the interesting bits was that they put me through the, the old Myers-Briggs, you know, the Myers-Briggs personality test? A lot of you are familiar with that. And 
I come out as an INTJ, for those of you that are interested in that sort of thing. INTJ, Peter. <laughs> Which is one of the rarest ones, actually. But anyway, I digress. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it is good to know that I am right and you are all wrong. <laughs> that is good. Yeah. But, you know, the really interesting thing for me, when I'd done all that and I had my meeting with a lady and she took me all through it, she said, you've got an anomaly. I said, oh dear. <laughs> okay, yes, you've got an anomaly. And if you're an INTJ like me, you're not big on compassion. And when she showed me the bar charts, they were all to the left, except this one big spike coming out the other way to the right, and that was compassion. Now that's God, isn't it? That's the work of God in my life, has transformed me against my type, my character type, and given me a heart for the, for the lost and needy. And that's God. That's the grace of God working in me. And he's working in you too. He can overturn your whole personality if he needs to. And that brings us to the history lesson. You do better on this one, Alan. I know you will. You're all right on this one. So, Titus was on the island of Crete. And if you research it a little bit, you'll find that in the Old Testament times, the island of Crete, or the region around there, was known as Kaftor. Kaftor. So if you're reading the Old Testament and it mentions Kaftor, it's basically talking about Crete. And a long time ago, maybe 2,000 years before, Crete had been a great civilization. Kaftor had been the home of a people called the Minoans. And they were a great civilized bunch. They had a lot of art and all that kind of thing. They were a high-flying society, the Minoans were. And that civilization had collapsed. And interestingly enough, one of the reasons why the Minoan civilization collapsed was pirates. pirates. Hey. <laughs> They'd been, being an island, it was a great place for a pirate base. So Crete had been attacked by pirates to the point where that was one of the things that brought down the whole civilization. And some of the Cretans had had enough of that. So they emigrated and they went to a place which became the land of the Philistines. Just around the time that Moses was leading the children of Israel into the promised land, a lot of Cretans said, we've had enough of this, we're off. And they started a new uh, place which became the Philistines. That's where they came from. Now, the Philistines, as you know, were always opposed to the purposes of God, weren't they? They were always against the work of God. Goliath, the whole lot, were enemies of the purpose of God. As God was bringing in 
the children of Israel, you could go as far as to say that the Philistines were the counterfeit, weren't they? And they'd come from a place that was overrun with pirates, where civilization had gone out the window. And around about that time, or a little bit after that actually, about 700 BC, there was a Cretan called Epimenides. Been practicing that. And he's quoted in chapter one, and Alan preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Epimenides said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They'd come from a place overrun with pirates, they'd set up the Philistines, they'd made all kinds of trouble for the people of God. It's not a good record, is it? <laughs> really. And that's the very place that God said, that's where I want to build my church. That's where I'm going to send my best guys, Titus and Paul, and I'm going to start a church right there. Right there at the source of all that trouble, all that opposition, all that wickedness, those are the people I want in my church. <laughs> Hallelujah. And you know, when the church appeared on the island, like I said before, that was totally, radically different to the society that they had there. It's interesting, isn't it, how many times Paul mentions drinking in this letter. How many times he says, be sober. Make sure your leaders are sober. Make sure your ladies don't drink too much. I think they must have had a massive drinking problem on Crete at that time. There was probably people lying in the streets, drunk as a lord. And that was the culture that they were seeding a church into. So no wonder he says, look, listen, don't drink too much, okay? We need to bring oil to this water. We need something that is going to be a radical contrast to what's happening on this island. And we know that that's the way that we break through, isn't it? When we come in the opposite spirit to whatever is over a region, whether it be drink or whatever it might be, we have to come with the opposite to, t to tackle that. And you know, the amazing thing is, it worked, didn't it? It worked. If you go to Crete these days, I've never been, but if you do go, you will find spirit-filled Christian people on that island. You will find churches where Jesus is honored and worshipped. And for 2,000 years, that island has been a Christian, a place that honors Christ. That's good fruit, isn't it? That is good fruit. They transformed that island. They turned it around through the radical gospel. Hallelujah. So, grace is absolutely key to our Christian faith. But we need to get this right in our heads. 
And you know, here's an interesting thing about the sacrificial grace of Jesus. Jesus had some incredibly hard things to say to people at times. He really laid it on the line. But you know, the interesting thing is that when he did that, it was always in the general. When he spoke to individuals, it was always grace. Now this is something that we haven't really got a hold of and it's caused us all kinds of problems. So I just want to look at this for a moment. And this part of the message is called The Woes of Jesus. The Woes of Jesus. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Whole cities, woe. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, lawyers. Whole professions. Woe. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, rich. Woe to you, fool. Woe to you who laugh now. <laughs> Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Whole groups of people, and just to round it off, woe to the world. Woe to the lot of you. <laughs> These are the words of Jesus. But when he spoke to the individual lawyer, or the individual Pharisee, or the individual prostitute, or tax collector, or whatever kind of sinner you happen to be, it was grace, wasn't it? That's the difference. Woe to the world, but grace to the individual. We really need to get a hold of this. Condemnation from Jesus is general, and grace works for the individual. I can't even read that bit. What does that say? Oh, yeah. I'll come back to that. <laughs> it's like... We're on the ship, and the message coming over the tannoy is that we have hit the iceberg, the ship is going down, and you need to get in the lifeboat. That's the message to society. But the message to the individual is, let me help you up that ladder. Let me bring a torch to show you the way to the lifeboat. Let me help you into the boat. We need to hold those two things in balance. Interestingly enough, the world says exactly the opposite, doesn't it? The world says anything goes, do what you like. Please yourselves. But everybody feels guilty on the inside, don't they? Everybody is carrying unresolved guilt, unresolved hurt. That that kind of blanket please yourself, is never going to speak into, never going to deal with. 
we have to go the exact opposite way. And we have to pattern something radically different to what this world is seeing. Let's move on. Verse 13. We are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back to this world. Peter spoke about this recently, and that was a great word, so I'm not going to go over that. But uh, he blasted the secret rapture doctrine with both barrels. That was a great word. <laughs> we enjoyed that. I'm not going to add to that, but what I will say is that any doctrine that ends up in court over the movie rights is probably not a great doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, Jesus is returning. Let's look at a couple of verses. Luke 21, 27. Twenty-one, twenty-seven. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. <laughs> they will see. Verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with cruising, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's have a sozo prayer, shall we? A repeated prayer. Pray after me. Lord Jesus, I pray that I may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before you. Amen. That's a good prayer, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever prayed that before, but Jesus says pray it, so let's pray it. To be counted worthy to stand before him. That's my prayer. To Peter. Second Peter. And chapter 3 verse 4. Three, verse 3, sorry. Know this first, that scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We need the grace of God to teach us, don't we? Holy conduct and godliness. Because the Lord is on his way. And when he gets here, it's not going to be a picnic. He's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. He's coming to take over. We need to be ready. This runs all the way through the New Testament, the imminent return of Christ. We need to be ready. We need to factor that into our five-year plan. <laughs> There's one for the five-year plan. <laughs> you know, in Thessalonians, they got to the point where they were just camping out on the hill, waiting. Waiting for the Lord to come. Now, we might have a laugh at them for their naive approach, but not for their sincerity and not for their commitment. Let's uh, find our way back to Titus. We could say a lot more about this, that. But I want to finish off with verse 15. This is a really important verse for us. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority... Let no one despise you. Let no one despise you. If you are serious about your Christian walk, and you're serious about living for God, you're going to get some stick. You're going to get some flack. We are God's own special people, zealous for good works. And not everybody likes that. They really don't. Some will hold you in contempt. If you say, I want to live by this book, I want this to be my anchor, you'll take some stick for that. You really will. If you say, I want to be filled every day with the Holy Spirit and I want to follow the Spirit, <laughs> boy, will you take some stick for that. <laughs> if you do both, well, <laughs> God help you. <laughs> yes. Godfrey's got a song about that. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I won't try and sing it. <laughs> but the chorus is, I'm going forward with my eyes on Jesus. Forward with my eyes on the Lord. Forward with my eyes on Jesus. I ain't going to be distracted anymore. 
And some of us have got a bit despised and a bit battered by those who are happy to denounce sincere Christian faith. My advice to you is seek the Lord. And whatever he tells you to do, do that. And if you take stick for it, know that you're blessed. Resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Yes, you'll take some knives in the back. But it's worth it. It's worth it for knowing him. The Bible says in Romans, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And it's better to be despised now and be able to be counted worthy of the Son of Man than to get yourself mixed up and emulsified with the world and then have to face him and hear him say, you fell short of the best that I had for you. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be counted worthy to stand before you. We pray that your word would be alive in us and that your Holy Spirit would be our guide. Lord, give us teachable hearts. May your grace teach us all truth. And may our lives so pattern the gospel that this world will see that here is a people who are radically different to anything else that's going on in this world. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is for each and every soul upon this earth. And we want to be channels of your grace, Lord God. Pulling people out of the fire. Help us this week, Lord, to live as true Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.